Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. One of the major difficulties often encountered when trying to first expose young people to the importance of history is that of relevance. What's the point, really, in learning all about what all those long-dead people once did? Well, there are lots of different ways of addressing this question, of course, but one revealing approach is to highlight how the past is not nearly so distinct from present concerns as we might naively suspect an insight that frequently spurred on Harvard University historian David Armitage in his quest to examine the history of what we mean exactly by civil war and how that very notion has intriguingly evolved over time. Was history a subject which intrigued you from your earliest possible years or your earliest memories at least? Or was it something that you, you grew to be captivated by? Well, my earliest memories are, we might say, pre-historical. Uh, but my <laughs> earliest historical memories uh, probably go back to my early teens. I remember some of the very first books that I ever bought myself were works of history. One on uh, Alexander von Humboldt and his hmm. travels in South America. Uh, and another one by the great Renaissance cultural and intellectual historian Francis Yates, The, um, the Art of Memory, uh, both of which seem to me enormously intriguing topics, but ones which, even when I think back, I can't remember why I would have been initially interested in them at the age of 14 or 15, but both of them, looking back, as we always do, may have pointed towards some of the directions that my own interests would go academically uh, at school, at university, and then subsequently in my 
career as an historian, but my career as an historian was belated. Uh, in fact, I studied English literature as an undergraduate and began oh, really? a PhD on Shakespeare for a couple of years until I learned the error of my ways and uh, reverted back to history. Which so what, what happened? Was there a singular event that, that took place? Or? Um, I How think did you learn the error of your ways? Well, I was counter-suggestible as a schoolboy, and as you know, in the British system, uh, one gets tracked ever more tightly uh, through one's secondary education to uh, the likelihood of doing a single subject at university and at my school the two tracks that seemed most obvious for my interests were either into English literature or into history and history was always going to be the most likely of those subjects, the one that I enjoyed most and uh, had greatest success at as a schoolboy. But at the last possible moment, like um, a show jumper's horse bulking at the uh, the final fence, I decided that um, so excellent was the teaching I had at school, and it genuinely was. I'd learned just about everything I thought I wanted to learn at that point about the historical periods that I was likely to study, mm. and so it would be more profitable to open up uh, my vistas on the past by studying literature in addition to what I'd already learned as an historian um, mm -hmm. at the school level. So I went to Cambridge, as it turned out, to study English and did much better on my exams than I or perhaps anyone else expected and uh, for lack of imagination, but also because of the opportunity that was available, I went straight on to do a PhD and I'd done my equivalent in the, in the Cambridge system of a senior thesis uh, on Shakespeare and so wanted to develop some of the, uh, the ideas and the research that I'd done as an undergraduate into a PhD thesis but found after about 18 months that um, although it was wonderful to be in Shakespeare's company, I couldn't really imagine a large part of my life spent with other Shakespeare scholars. Ah. Not that individually they weren't very interesting, but I found it too limiting to have only one canon of one author to work on when really I wanted to range much more broadly. Even at that point I knew I had an exceedingly low boredom threshold uh, that I was likely to be changing topics and questions and interests uh, quite often and to be confined within one single body of material, however rich and deep and profound uh, that might be in the case of the Shakespearean canon was not likely to be where I'd be, mo where I'd be most happy. So um, I went to talk to a friend who was also a careers advisor and said to her I wanted to abandon my academic career, to give up my PhD, to get out of um, this confining uh, profession that I've been uh, channeled into and do something imaginative like take the civil service exams uh, oh my goodness. and she rightly said don't be so foolish uh, you're having quite a freak uh, quite a frequent kind of crisis among graduate students uh, why not apply for a fellowship uh, to go somewhere else for a year or two um, as part of your doctoral research to uh, refresh yourself, meet some new people, learn some new techniques, get into some new conversations and very luckily I got a two-year fellowship uh, to study in the United States and ended up in Princeton um, in large part because Princeton had uh, an extremely good still has an extremely good group of early modern historians and so I think I knew at that point that I wanted to retool as an historian um, or rather go back to my roots as, a, as an historian um, and 
that is certainly what happened in those two years. And when I came back to Cambridge after the end of those two years uh, to Cambridge, uh, I had moved back to history. Uh, I was now doing a history PhD, working with Quentin Skinner, or, mm. uh, doing my final uh, writing up under his supervision, and the rest, as they say, is history. <laughs> and the people who awarded you this fellowship, um, is this a common thing? They're amenable to Shakespearean scholars, Elizabethan scholars, and, and English literature to move over and take up a fellowship in early modern history? This is, this is a, um, I should probably say something else because I think that sound uh, will obscure things, so mm -hmm. I will ask the mm -hmm. question again. Mm -hmm. So uh, the people at Princeton who awarded the fellowship, they were obviously amenable to somebody from a rather different background coming to study early modern history, that is a Shakespearean scholar. Was that common, is, or, or was was that unusual? Did it have to do with the people there in particular, or, or was that a fairly common event? Uh, it wasn't, in fact, a fellowship from Princeton. It was a fellowship from um, a wonderful organization called the Commonwealth Fund of New York, and this was a Harkness Fellowship, ah. uh, which was founded in the 1920s as what was called um, subsequently the Roads in Reverse, as the Roads sent uh, young Americans to Britain to learn about Britain and the British Empire uh, right. and create an Anglo-American Anglophone elite. So the Harkness Fellowship was founded in the other direction to bring um, Ta insights. Ta talented non-Americans. Uh, 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 I think there was a German Harkness Fellowship for many years, for instance, but it was mostly um, students or young professionals from Britain to study for two years in the US. And it was the most marvelous fellowship uh, that it gave you two years uh, of academic study anywhere you wanted. It wasn't tied to a particular university. And they forced you to travel in the summer between your two academic years. So you were given um, quite a generous stipend to rent a car or to pay for train tickets or uh, any mode of transportation to see as much of the United States as possible. Um, uh, two years after I was awarded the fellowship, I think it was two years after the Commonwealth Fund decided that this was um, a luxury that was incompatible with its broader goals, and so they closed the fellowship program down in that form. So uh, the kind of freedom that you rightly perceived in this to follow one's own path um, became much narrower afterwards, but it completely changed the course of my life. Right. And I'm eternally grateful for that, not only for the freedom it gave me to migrate intellectually, uh, but ultimately it convinced me, or actually rather immediately it convinced me that I would be much happier in the longer term working and living in the United States than I would be back in Britain. So it opened up that possibility, and as soon as I possibly could, I came back to the US and I've been here ever since for 25 years, but that was uh, very much thanks to the uh, the Commonwealth Fund and the Harkness Fellowship and then the opportunity that, that brought up in Princeton where um, I met an enormous range of uh, very close friends, um, contemporaries who remain uh, close friends, but also uh, some very significant intellectual influences as well among historians and other scholars who were in or around or coming through Princeton at that point. So those were very important years for me. And as you mentioned, um, eventually moving on and, and working with Quentin Skinner, mm -hmm. um, I know nothing about this, but it, it, it strikes me as potentially more than just coincidence that you, somebody who had had experience and training as a Shakespearean scholar, um, connected with somebody who has long been interested, passionately so, of rhetoric mm -hmm. and that particular time period. Of course, he has 
uh, enormously wide interests as well, but uh, somebody who's just written a book not too mm-hmm. not too long ago mm-hmm. on, on on rhetoric and the power of rhetoric in mm-hmm. Shakespearean mm-hmm. England. Um, so I imagine that you had a lot to talk about. Did that play any role? Did you have lots of conversations with him about this sort of thing as well, or, or not so much? Well, it's certainly what drew me to uh, him was his work, and one of the key insights of his of Quentin's methodological work, as indeed uh, much of his own scholarship, is uh, the necessity to put ideas in context. Indeed, that became the title of the uh, the uh, series of uh, scholarly series that he founded at Cambridge University Press to put ideas in context. And I realised when I read his work that. Um, uh, he was expressing uh, infinitely more elegantly and infinitely more subtly uh, answers to questions that I have been asking for about 10 years by that point. Um, how are we to put um, ideas and other cultural forms into uh, the past in such a way that they become comprehensible in past terms, but then can also be rendered comprehensible in the present? Uh, that's That's a rather roundabout way of saying that uh, I've been intrigued by versions of that question as a literary scholar. Uh, how could we understand the language of Shakespeare or his contemporaries or near contemporaries in such a way that we could recover that in historical terms? This was not necessarily a question that literary scholars were asking at that point in the 1980s. Um, and part of my frustration, the reason why I wanted to move out of literature into history was because the historians, especially intellectual historians like Quentin and his students and, and uh, contemporaries were asking were the questions I wanted to ask about uh, complex linguistic phenomena, whether it was a Shakespeare play, an epic poem by John Milton, a work of political thought by Thomas Hobbes or John Locke, uh, or in parallel um, performances of 16th century music. 17th century music, 18th century music. Many of my closest friends and contemporaries when I was an undergraduate and a graduate student were uh, musicians, music scholars, singers, many of whom were involved in the uh, early music movement and the authentic performance movement at that point. And they were grappling with questions which were remarkably similar to the kinds of questions that intellectual historians were grappling with, uh, but often in very different language. We can't hear with 16th century ears, but we can approximate to um, 16th century performance practices in singing or 18th century performance practices on uh, the violin, uh, for instance. Um, And how does one bridge that gap to recover some kind of authenticity uh, to understand how the original creators or in the case of music performers understood um, what they were doing. Um, I realized, having read my way into that literature and talked to my friends who were uh, uh, trying to reconstruct music, for instance, in that way, these were exactly the same questions that intellectual historians were asking, and also art historians as well. I read a lot of art history at that point from um, E.H. Gombrich and Michael Baxendall and others who were trying to do a similar kind of historical recovery exercise in art history. And I think the confluence of those interests in historical performance in music, the recovery of 
alien understandings of art and its meanings, and then the kinds of pointed questions that historians like Quentin Skinner were asking, um, helped me to grope towards answers to the sorts of questions that were driving me that I, went, I was not finding, uh, at that point at least, among literary scholars, though uh, certainly things began to change very rapidly after that, and the kind of work that Quentin and others have done on Shakespeare more recently is a sign of 20 or 25 years of new scholarship which have brought those similar kinds of questions into literary work. Right, but the motivations presumably were, were, were similar and were long-standing, right. I would imagine. Exactly, yes, yes. Um, it, it's interesting hearing you say this because um, from my sense of your work and, and obviously more your recent work, I'm, I regard you much more as a politically oriented thinker um, if you look at um, if, if you look at the ideological origins of the British Empire, if you, uh, more specifically, if you look at the Declaration of Independence, your recent work, which is uh, soon to be coming out on, on civil wars, um, there is a clear sense of ideas that are uh, an understanding from a political perspective and from a socio-political perspective. Um, so I would have imagined, the answer I was expecting Perhaps I didn't do my homework well enough. Mm -hmm. But the answer I was expecting was this sense of um, being particularly oriented to get a greater sense of um, uh, political conflict and human dynamics on a societal level. Um, and it seems that really wasn't a, a, a primary motivation for you. It was, uh, it was much more a sense of... Uh, of, I guess, having broader perspectives. Do you regard yourself now as a more politically oriented um, intellectual historian, or would that be pigeonholing you too much and you would rebel against that? Uh, oh, no, no. I, no, I think that's, that's very fair, and it, and it does mark um, a very fundamental change that took place during the years that I was in Princeton, uh, and also to look at it from another perspective during the years when I was outside Britain, that... Um, it went, uh, those years in Princeton, I discovered that I was British rather than English, for instance. Uh, it was interesting to be called British or Brit by Americans and to begin to reflect on what's the difference between being English and British. This was in the late, late 1980s. So um, in the initial stirrings of um, questions about nationalism, which burst out especially after 1989 in um, Central and Eastern Europe, uh, questions about the European Union, uh, globalization was not a word that anyone used at that point, but we're beginning to intuit vast shifts which were um, somehow easier to spot once I was outside my domestic environment where I'd been brought up uh, and could look from a rather different perspective from across the Atlantic and to think about the nature of a very different political system in the US, its relationship to its historical roots. Uh, I began to think much more about the Atlantic perspective, which became very important for uh, much of my subsequent work. Um, but, but even more broadly, from a global perspective, precisely. I mean, when, when, mm -hmm. you're, when you're looking at uh, the Declaration of Independence mm -hmm. and, and, mm -hmm. and, and this, this latest book on, on, on civil wars, and the, I, maybe it shouldn't be civil war, civil war, I suppose, mm -hmm. as, a, mm -hmm. as, as a concept. Mm -hmm. Um, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, mm. but uh, it, it seems to me that when I was reading this, I thought, well, here's, here's this person who's clearly grappling with this, this issue uh, from a wide variety of different angles. Mm -hmm. 
what is what is really the difference between a nation and a state, mm -hmm. uh, let alone a nation state? What um, uh, how do people collectively identify in one particular orientation or another particular orientation, and more significantly, how does this change over time, and why does this change over time, and how is it used, and how is it abused, and, and all the rest of that. So my perspective is this is clearly a driving force for this particular individual, mm -hmm. and I was, uh, I was not expecting a Shakespearean scholar mm. or a once Shakespearean mm. scholar, so I suppose that shows a limitation on, on my part. Um, but you, you, you mentioned in, um, at the beginning of, of your recent book on civil war, you talk about um, the origins of your involvement in that particular uh, work, and I'd like to get to that in a moment. But you, you make some um, pithy comment about how you had written a book, namely uh, the global history of the Declaration of Independence, as um, um, state making, as it were, and so you thought maybe it would be interesting to mm -hmm. do something that was oriented towards state breaking. Um, but, but uh, uh, of course, what it seems to me what you're really saying is um, you're exploring um, this ambiguity. What is a revolution? What uh, what are the words that people might ascribe to something depending on their perspective? Uh, one man's secessionist is, is another man's freedom fighter, and mm -hmm. so forth. And you have these things coming up over and over again over the ages. And uh, it looks to me like you're taking different uh, parallel approaches, really, towards addressing the same issue. Mm -hmm. Is that a fair way to look at it? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. And again, I think this was a discovery. Um, of a driving question that came, as it were, after I'd left Shakespeare and moved on to other more political topics that um, I tend to feel looking back I've only ever had one idea and I keep coming back to that. Um, and that was a good idea. That's, 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 <laughs> it's been reasonably productive. I've ridden it quite hard for, for many years now uh, and it's not always obvious that uh, everybody has even one idea to, to work with so I suppose I'm lucky that I got that one and, uh, and that idea has circulated around um, the question of the state, uh, where it emerged from, what it was related to, why it's proved so resilient, um, how it proliferated around the globe as well. So my first book, which you kindly mentioned on the ideological origins of the British Empire, was as much about the process of state formation in Britain, that is the, the binding together of three kingdoms, England, Scotland, Ireland, into what ultimately becomes by the 19th century, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland, of course, an entity that's under great stress uh, at at the moment, um, wondering about the origins of that in relation to the process of empire building in the Atlantic world, the usual story that was told was that uh, first you had states and then you had empires. So uh, an English or a British state was created, a French state was created. Uh, much later, for instance, a German state was created, an Italian state was created, and the next thing you did once you become a state was to create an empire, was to send people out or to conquer territory or to corner resources, whatever it may be. Uh, and I wanted to complicate that story in my first book by saying, well, in fact, maybe it was the other way around, that uh, state formation was the result of empire, not um, something that uh, uh, emerged uh, in, in a linear fashion with the state coming first and empire coming later. And having taken that story of the formation of the British Empire up to the middle of the 18th century um, and quite deliberately refusing 
in that first book to say anything about the American Revolution. That was a vortex into which I did not want to be drawn. Yeah. It seemed logical then, um, not least because at that point I, I'd spent um, the earliest part of my uh, career as a teacher in the United States to pay back some of the debt to the US by thinking about American history through an Atlantic and indeed partly a British and then ultimately a global lens in the Declaration of Independence uh, book which uh, as, as you said takes um, an international and then a global view of the American Declaration of Independence to try and understand how that document was marked by its international context in 1776 what its authors thought they were doing, to take one of Quentin Skinner's famous phrases, what its authors thought they were doing by issuing a Declaration of Independence at that point, and then by tracing the long-range impact of the Declaration uh, through its own reception history, how was the Declaration itself read and imitated elsewhere, but also how it uh, created a genre of other declarations of independence. More than 100 such declarations of independence have been issued since 1776, which allows us to trace the spread of independence as a defining feature of statehood around the globe since the, uh, the 18th century, really right up to the present. To Kosovo in 2008, to South Sudan uh, more recently, for instance, to see a long-range process unfolding. Um, and that also intersected with uh, a more recent book, Foundations of Modern International Thought, which was centered around the question of how did we all come to believe that we live in a world of states? Right. Um, we have this uh, rather odd linguistic problem that we have a club for states that's called the United Nations, which is actually made up of states, well, not of said, nations. You said it should have been the United States, but that name was already taken. Somebody had so. already <laughs> taken that. I forget who. Yes, exactly. Uh, so in fact, I mean, uh, one could follow that through a little bit further and say the United States is in fact in some sense an agglomeration of different nations, if by that we mean self-identifying peoples um, mm. brought together under the umbrella of one federal political organization. So perhaps we should do a swap and uh, the United <laughs> States should become called the United Nations and, and, and vice versa. But, I don't think that would work very well with the Republican Party. but. Uh, well, probably not yes. the Democrats either, but certainly yes. not the Republicans. No, quite, quite. Uh, but these are all all seem to be logical questions, and, and, as, and as you as you said, uh, uh, having talked about the process of state making in the Declaration of Independence book, that book had also t taken me into um, a lot of literature. For instance, in the the era of what we call the American Revolution, uh, where contemporaries talked about the American Civil War in 1775, or talked about um, a civil war taking place on on both sides of the Atlantic, not right. obviously a uh, a war of arms in Britain itself, but one which violently divided people, and certainly on this uh, on the American side of the Atlantic did uh, 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 create local civil wars as well as something that could be thought of as a, a British civil war um, uh, to succeed the civil wars of the 17th century, for instance, as contemporaries understood it. And I wonder, well, why did they think in those terms? Right. Uh, where did that idea of civil war come from? What implications would it have for them? And how did it relate to contemporary, that is, contemporary in our own time, questions of civil war? So that particular book on Civil War began when I was still thinking about some of the issues that had been raised by the Declaration of Independence book uh, at a time when I was researching at the Huntington Library in Southern California. And this was in um, late 2006, early 2007, at the height of the violence in the Iraq War, when mm. there was a very pointed, highly political and polemical debate 
especially in the US, but also in other parts of the world, about what to call the violence in Iraq. Was it an insurgency? Was it a rebellion? Was it terrorism? Or was it a civil war? And so I realized that maybe the questions that I'd been grappling with for uh, over a decade at that point had some contemporary political relevance rather than, uh, as we sometimes prejudicially say, merely historical significance. And so I wanted to bring uh, a long-range historical story about the meanings of civil war uh, up to the present and in some ways culminating um, this strand of interest in different forms of human community, the political language used to describe them, and the ways in which that political language can become very polemical uh, and often conflictual in and of itself. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. And, and that's a, that seems to be a constant theme through your work, a constant focus, the political language, the rhetoric, how words are used and abused, abused is perhaps too heavy-handed, how words change their connotation, mm -hmm. they change their meaning, mm -hmm. they change their context. The Declaration of Independence uh, was something uh, which is now regarded uh, as, a, as a fairly... A sacrosanct document by everybody in this country and many other countries, but at the time uh, served a rather different functional purpose. You talk about it moving on as a genre later mm -hmm. on. It wasn't recognized immediately in the same way that it is recognized today. So the evolution of words, the evolution of what those words mean, uh, how they're being used, but also the etymology is, is another seems to me very uh, salient stream throughout your work. In the Civil War book, you talk about um, the fact that uh, by our understanding, our contemporary understanding, the Greeks didn't really have a word for civil war. The closest they had was this word stasis, but they didn't actually have a word, and that it was really the, the Romans who invented the idea of civil war. And in Latin and within their context, there was an oxymoronic tension mm -hmm to that word, uh, or rather to that expression, um, which has dissipated in, in contemporary translations of that. So this focus on the etymology, it reminded me of when I spoke with uh, Darren McMahon, mm -hmm. who talked uh, about genius and how the etymology of that word had all sorts of um, causal implications in terms of the way people regarded genius or what genius really was, what it, what it actually was. 
when I talk to John Donne, he talks about the etymology of democracy, mm -hmm. and that's he devotes a rather significant part of uh, one of his books on democracy towards, well, what is the etymology? How has it changed? How have different peoples regarded the actual words themselves? Quentin Skinner, of course, with the sense of freedom and all mm -hmm. the rest of that. So I, as I'm reading this, I'm thinking to myself, is it possible to be an intellectual historian and not pay attention to etymology? Is, is that conceivable? I mean, do you know any non-etymologically oriented intellectual historians, or is that in itself oxymoronic? I think there are, well, there are a great many intellectual historians who are much less interested in etymology because they're um, perhaps less invested in the overlap between words and concepts. Uh, and this is a point of interesting debate among intellectual historians. What is, what is it that we study? Uh, some intellectual historians study intellectuals, either individual really? intellectuals or groups of intellectuals. And well, they're literally intellectual historians. They, they, yes. they, they yeah. are historians of this mm -hmm. species of intellectuals. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's, that's a perfectly legitimate topic. It's a very important one. Uh, um, it shades into social history as well as intellectual history. It's uh, focused as much on the uh, interpersonal relations, the educational backgrounds, the various kinds of interactions among individuals as it is on their intellectual products in terms of their structured texts or arguments, for instance. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think for those of us who are um, in various ways attached to the contextualist method, what's been called sometimes misleading the Cambridge School, we're very interested in language and how language functions, uh, and therefore an interest in language and the way in which it structures thought, uh, and also can be used instrumentally, that language uh, can be used to uh, persuade, to decry, uh, to undermine, to promote, and many other things. Uh, we're interested in the way in which language is functional as well as uh, merely semantic as a carrier of meaning, how it can be used, especially in political terms. Um, and I think those, those of us who are in that tradition are interested in etymologies, um, not in the sense that etymology is destiny, that the original meaning of a term will there, therefore always ever after inflect the way in which a term is used or what its implications can be. Well, this is your history in ideas as opposed exactly. to history of ideas. Yes, it's, it's yes. this notion that, that uh, it's, it's contextual, that the, the, mm -hmm. there's no platonic mm -hmm. form mm -hmm. of these particular mm -hmm. words that exist. Mm -hmm. Sorry. It's, it's mobile, it's contextual, but also um, it's what one might call sedimentary, um, that the history of the different uses of a term uh, is always to some extent embedded or sedimented into its uses ever after, whether consciously or unconsciously. Sometimes it's quite conscious, um, especially in the context of quite tight and smoothly or frequently transmitted traditions like the classical tradition of Roman and Greek classics, uh, which formed the bedrock of um, education in large parts of the West. Um, deep into the 20th century. Indeed, I was probably part of the very last generation uh, for which that was still fundamental. I went to a grammar school in the north of England that had been founded in the 15th century, and although the, uh, the teaching of Greek had gone just about by the time I arrived there, and so I didn't learn ancient Greek at school, uh, Latin was still fundamental. I studied Latin all the way through to my final years, and 
was reading a canon uh, of Latin works of poetry and prose which uh, St. Augustine would have recognized, uh, for instance. Uh, so within traditions like that, the memory of earlier usages and allusions to uh, the meanings of words as well as the meanings of um, events, individual characters, rhetorical tropes, was deeply embedded. Um, and the method of a history in ideas to recover that sedimentation of meanings um, is basically Nietzschean. Mm. I think my early uh, encounter with uh, Nietzsche's genealogy of, mor uh, genealogy of morality was, uh, again, one of those moments where I realized, aha, I've been groping towards something like that without realizing how well uh, someone had expressed it in the 1880s uh, in that particular case. And one of the um, most uh, pointed utterances in that particular text is where Nietzsche says only um, an idea which has no history can be defined, uh, that the most complex ideas are those for which no single definition is possible. And certainly when I was putting together the materials for the book on civil war, I, I think I even quote that in the book, yes. uh, that it uh, uh, fundamentally expresses the way in which I understand the way in which concepts of civil war, ideas of civil war have accumulated, sedimented over time in such a way that all efforts to reduce that term to a single definition, um, falsify the complexity of its history, uh, but also do violence to the way in which violence is understood um, and should be understood. And so the exercise of a history and ideas is to uncover the various genealogical layers that history has sedimented into the meaning of the term and to look at the ways in which often, again, this is a very Nietzschean way of thinking about it, conflict had driven meaning. Conflict had uh, over the meaning of key terms, uh, whether it's civil war or democracy, genius, art, um, other uh, similarly powerful terms, um, is what has um, made them objects of recurrent study, conflict, contestation and appropriation, but also makes them uh, ideal vehicles for historical reconstruction, almost archaeological reconstruction, again, to, to add a Foucauldian metaphor to the, the, the Nietzschean genealogical metaphor as well. Um, I have a very short question, but before I do, just a comment. Um, have you, there seems to be something very curious about you, David, because <laughs> you, you went to a grammar school and you were one of the last people to do that before uh, the roof caved in on mm -hmm, that. And mm -hmm. You won this fellowship, a mm -hmm. uh, broad-minded fellowship, and you were one of the last people mm -hmm, through. Mm -hmm. Are you doing something curious to the academic world that, that, <laughs> that they break the mold mm -hmm. after, after mm -hmm. you? you <laughs> no, I think I might, uh, you, you spot a pattern that I've reflected on myself, that I, uh, the typhoid Mary of Western intellectual life, and uh, anything I do will collapse immediately after I have done it. So uh, uh, I always tell people, stay far away from me. Uh, or do it at the same time, at least. Maybe, I mean, yes, but who knows whether one can do that. 
that, but uh, uh, it also relates to a very disturbing pattern that I, I was uh, teaching at Columbia and therefore in New York on the day of 9-11. Oh, uh, I was in London on the day of 7-7, so I always tell people, don't come to a city with me because something terrible is going to happen. But there were other, lots of other people who were in That's New true. York 9-11 yes. in London. Yes. I mean, it, yes. it's not as if you were in Tulsa, Oklahoma when some terrible event no, happened. No, no, no. Nor was I in Madrid during the Atocha bombing and so there on and so go. forth there as well. But, but for a while, I did, I did begin to wonder, uh, why did every institution wither and die after I had uh, uh, successfully taken part in it? And then why were all of these terrible uh, acts also happening somewhere around where I wasn't? Uh, well, um, a subject for future historians. Mm, know, indeed, too. indeed. Well, it's also a sign one should never overestimate one's own historical significance. <laughs> um, you, you mentioned being at the Huntington Library, uh, and you write about that in the introduction mm -hmm, to your book. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that you were studying, uh, you were there to study the, the works of, or at least some aspect of the works of, uh, of Francis Lieber and, and, mm -hmm. and the codification of, of the rules of engagement during war and so forth. Um, and, and then um, he, he, in turn, in the 19th century, had been suggested to extend that definition to civil war, and then you pick up the New York Times or whatever one reads in Los Angeles. Probably the New York Times, but anyway, uh, the LA Times, in fact, there. Yeah, well, mm -hmm. yes, I know mm -hmm. they have that. But mm -hmm. anyway, whatever mm -hmm. it is that you're you're mm -hmm. reading, um, and and there's the contemporary events of whether or not people are calling something civil war and rules of engagement or mm -hmm. terrorism or insurrection or what mm -hmm. have you, and of course the the pre mm -hmm. present and past are colliding. Um, but you didn't actually mention what you were originally mm. planning to do with mm. this Francis mm. Lieber business, uh, because this was after the Declaration of Independence book, presumably. So mm -hmm. what what were you planning to do, and uh, are you still thinking about doing that? I, mm. I understand that morphed into the Civil War book, mm -hmm. but uh, just a specific question. Mm. I actually wasn't planning to do anything uh, with that. Oh. I went to the Huntington with a completely different project uh, and discovered relatively rapidly that they didn't have exactly the materials I hoped uh, they were going to have. It was fantastic to be in Southern California for nine months, uh, but after about um, six weeks, I realized that the vein had run dry on the material I'd taken with me, so I needed to uh, plunge into the Huntington's other remarkable collections to see what else they might have. And again, this was during the Iraq War. It was a, a time when uh, precisely issues of the laws of war were becoming extremely salient um, across the globe because of what was going on in Iraq. Uh, I was aware extremely vaguely at that point that um, uh, Francis Lieber, um, a Prussian-born lawyer who was a veteran of uh, the Battle of Waterloo, who had migrated to the United States, first to South Carolina and then ultimately to uh, New York, had been the lead author on uh, what's usually taken to be the first modern codification of the laws of war. That was as much as I knew at that point. But I also knew or uh, had discovered that uh, all of his papers, or the vast majority of his papers, were held at the Huntington. I thought, well, this might be an interesting afternoon's work just to see what there was there. I'd... So you were poking around looking for was... something interesting yes, to, to yes, be doing. Yes, I mean, it's another example of um, the way in which uh, uh, well-directed academic philanthropy uh, can open up um, uh, 
the essential freedom that leads to productive serendipity, yeah. uh, which I think is the most crucial gift that one can get in academic life. So in this case, uh, I wasn't exactly twiddling my thumbs, but uh, I had uh, some flexibility of time. I had access to a vast range of extraordinarily interesting and potentially fertile materials. And at this moment, I thought I would look at Francis Lieber just out of interest, not right. because I thought it was going to lead to, uh, to anything. And I discovered very quickly in his correspondence that as he was putting together drafts of what came to be called the Lieber Code, uh, General Orders Number 100 was the official title of it for the Union Army uh, in 1863, um, that he sent um, um, a version of the code to his boss in Washington, D.C., uh, Henry Halleck, who, like um, Lieber himself, was a lawyer, in, in fact, an international lawyer in, ha in Halleck's case. And Halleck wrote back and said, this is fabulous. It's exactly what we're looking for. We need this codification for the Union Army. Slight problem. Uh, we're fighting a civil war here. You didn't mention that anywhere in the text. And could you just maybe add a paragraph or two uh, defining civil war uh, just at the end? Be really helpful for that. Um, and Lieber saw the force of that um, and then wrote back uh, in some intellectual anguish to his boss saying, you know, it's really much more difficult than I imagined. Um, there isn't, I've searched the literature, there is no legal definition of civil war anywhere that I can come up with, um, so I'm going to have to create one for myself or for us or for the Union Army or for lawyers in general here and this is rather a tough task, or as he put it in uh, one of his letters, ticklish business that. Uh, uh, and so he had to put together the first legal definition of civil war in 1863. Um, and it was a very bizarre definition of civil war, uh, largely tailored to uh, the current circumstances of uh, what was not even generally at that point being called the US Civil War, uh, but uh, it became uh, fundamental in uh, legalizing a concept which until that point had been uh, historical or literary uh, but had not been formalized within any expert discipline or language. Um, and this became the first moment where um, a group of professionals, in this case one professional but then other, other professional lawyers, uh, had to come down and say, okay, what is a civil war? What makes that different from other kinds of warfare or other kinds of organized violence? Um, and his difficulties about pinning down the concept of civil war or the meaning of the term civil war um, became extremely resonant for me because, as you said, this was, again, this was late 2006, early 2007. I was turning on the television, um, looking in the LA Times or the New York Times at the time when the debate was going on precisely about the language to describe the levels, the horrifying, sickening levels of violence uh, that were taking place in Iraq. And I thought uh, at that point, Ticklish business. Yes, ticklish business. Uh, uh, very polemical debate uh, taking place in the media, but also ultimately in uh, US Congress in particular, um, about whether or not what was happening in Iraq was a civil war, which was a parallel to this question of what is the conflict in 1863, what should we call it, and how should we define it? And I thought, um, as someone interested in the slipperiness of political language, but also the way in which 
that slipperiness on the page translates into um, real-world consequences sometimes for tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, even millions of people. I thought, well, maybe here was a, here was a topic. I was looking around for the subject for my next book, and it, uh, as so often happens, it's by sheer coincidence, though no coincidences are sheer coincidences, one always is prepared for the possibility that something will emerge from the concatenation of uh, unrelated materials. That out of that coincidence, I thought, okay, here's here's a book that I need to write, which would deal with um, 2006 in Iraq, 1863 in the U.S., 1776, uh, the American Revolution as a civil war, uh, the civil wars of the 17th century where some of my early research on British history had been concentrated, and then going all the way back to the Roman historians of civil war who might studied as a, a schoolboy um, uh, a couple of decades earlier uh, in my um, grammar school. Great, uh, career really, as well. Really theme for the for the long durée. Indeed, and I was uh, approaching uh, middle age uh, where I'm. Uh, very firmly ensconced at this point and thought this is a moment where I should be thinking about a big topic. And this was the biggest topic I could think of, a history of ideas of civil war from ancient Rome to the present. And uh, writing that book over the last decade has almost killed me, uh, but I, th I hope it will be worthwhile anyway, because I think it is uh, a topic where one can show um, the importance of a historical, genealogical, archaeological approach and the importance of intellectual history to understanding contemporary dilemmas, but also uh, make a claim for the importance of history in relation to public discourse, and also to make a claim uh, to historians, but also to a broader public about the necessity of treating uh, some fundamental topics in uh, a long range, or as historians say, long durée perspective, not uh, concentrating on a few months or a few years, but actually in uh, some cases excavating back through hundreds, even thousands of years in order to understand the uh, dilemmas of the present. So... Um Two remarks. Um, maybe this was a rhetorical device that you um, were using, but if memory serves, you wrote how uh, when you started thinking about this, you thought, "Well, surely somebody's thought of this before, mm -hmm. and, and and someone else has has written a, a long-ranging, mm -hmm. sweeping view of what a civil war is, what it means, how it's been used from different perspectives, its evolution throughout time," and you. Uh, you seem to be somewhat surprised to discover that, in fact, that wasn't mm -hmm. the case. So, so that's uh, that's always good, I suppose, when mm -hmm. one wants to mm -hmm. <laughs> delve into something. Mm -hmm. So that that was actually true. That you you mm -hmm. had your immediate reaction was somebody must have written about this. Absolutely, it's, it seems so obvious uh, and so important that how could anyone not have done this? Uh, I realized after having spent nearly ten years working on the book exactly why no one had done this because it's um, uh, extraordinarily difficult <laughs> uh, for one human being, let alone uh, even perhaps a team of human beings to uh, to cover such a large and complex span um, of material, but it was still, I, I think, for me, very important to do this. Uh, one's always glad to find a gap in the market. Um, uh, there are fewer and fewer such opportunities these days, but uh, uh, also um, it's important to, uh, for me at least, with every book that I've written to try and innovate methodologically somehow, uh, whether it's by uh, expanding 
in space by bringing together fields which hadn't been in dialogue with each other, or in the case of this, this book, by expanding the usual boundaries of intellectual history in time, I wanted to set myself a challenge, mm. a methodological challenge, as well as the challenge to answer a particular um, point in, and to me at least, and I hope to others, important question as well. Um, my second remark is uh, it's probably worth pointing out that the last time I checked, the Huntington Library is actually still standing. It is, so, yes. Uh, so Which typhoid, is extraordinary. Typhoid Mary. <laughs> <laughs> extraordinary can... in Southern California, uh, <laughs> a place that human beings should not inhabit. Uh, it will, uh, fire and earthquake and tsunami will take care of it. And, 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 the, and David Armitage as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I'm, I'm saying, having, mm -hmm. having been there for mm -hmm. you, you, mm -hmm. you didn't... Uh, you didn't destroy it in your... Apparently not. Legacy. It was still standing last time I was there a few months ago, that's right. So mm -hmm. maybe your powers of destruction are weakening, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. thankfully. Mm -hmm. um, I'd like to talk a little bit about the Romans. I'd like to ask mm. a specific question. You give a, an awful lot of time in your book to this notion of uh, the Romans having invented the concept of civil war. Uh, I talked a little bit, or at least I made an allusion to the etymology, as I understood you talked about, but it's much deeper than that. Um, and it plays a very strong role, in, as I understand it, in terms of um, not just how the Romans saw themselves, but how other people uh, related to the, the, the past that was descended <clears throat> to them through the Romans, um, which made me wonder if, if one could indulge in some sort of counterfactual, how might our understanding of civil war be changed, be different from what it is today we haven't actually talked about what that is, but how might it be different had the Roman Empire not existed at all? Had mm -hmm. there been no Roman world, as mm -hmm. it were? Mm -hmm. um, what's your sense of that? Mm. Well, and uh, to be technical just for a moment, the concept, the Roman concept of civil war uh, emerged in Republican Rome before the Roman Empire, Sorry. though certainly the Roman right. Empire itself was, uh, and its, um, its long um, ghostly afterlives was one very important mode of transmission of so ideas the, of civil the, the war. First century, it was about the first century BC that I guess it started with That's the correct. and all the rest of these That's guys, correct, right? yes, yes. I mean, the first recorded use of the term, again, to be strictly etymological, uh, for a moment, uh, is in the 60s BCE. I think, uh, Cicero is the first to use it in one of his speeches, but he used it in such an offhand, offhand way that it was very clear that it was already in um, Roman speech and the Latin language at the point that he used it. So we don't know who invented it. It, it must have almost certainly have been a man, uh, a Roman citizen, uh, probably someone with, with some knowledge of Roman basic knowledge of Roman law um, and Roman conceptions of citizenship and belonging. Mm. Uh, for the literal meaning of the term uh, civil war, or in Latin, bellum civile, is a war among or between citizens. Um, why was that such uh, a pointed and poignant term? Well, um, the broad Roman conception of war was a conflict that was just and that was fought against an external enemy, or in Latin, a hostis, someone who's hostile, someone who was, to use much later language, an other uh, from the outside. Um, a war against fellow citizens, uh, a bellum civile, a civil war, was almost deliberately paradoxical, even oxymoronic, in the sense that uh, it could not be just because it was not fought against someone who was other, distant, outside, hostile, in the classic sense nor could it be just in the sense of responding to an injury from uh, an external enemy. Um, so the original term was very 
unstable, explosive in that sense, uh, because the Romans, for the most part, named their wars for the enemy that they were fighting mm. rather than for the place where the war um, uh, uh, took place. Um, so war against um, Hannibal was sometimes or much later called the Hannibalic War, the Punic Wars against the Poini or the Carthaginians, or the war against the North African ruler Jugurtha was the Jugurthine War. Abellum Civile was a war against fellow citizens. And that was uh, uh, the, the very definition of incivility insofar as to be civilized, to be city-dwelling, to live in a civitas, a commonwealth, a city, as a metaphorical, a metaphysical, and a physical place, was to be protected precisely from the kinds of savage, barbaric, or animal-like violence which occurred outside that uh, civil, civilized uh, arena. Uh, and so the incursion of that violence into the community itself was the greatest horror that could be imagined. So there was enormous charge that was related to the very fundamental conceptions of politics, of community, of mm. belonging, of security, of freedom uh, among the Romans, which uh, gave the idea of civil war, um, uh, a charge which meant it was used very sparingly for the first century or so that we have records of its, of its usage. Um, and as you said, very paradoxical because mm -hmm. I, I mean, rather than civilization being mm -hmm. protected mm -hmm. um, by, by the forces of righteousness and justice, as it were, uh, you have a situation where civilization, or at least the the, the society is tearing itself apart, mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. hence it's it's etymologically uh, the opposite of of, of what one mm -hmm. might expect through, mm -hmm. through other wars. Yes, it's almost the idea that Rome was eating itself, mm -hmm. uh, that civilization was feed or civility was feeding off itself, uh, especially after almost a century of wars that were called and thought of as civil wars within Rome itself. And this seemed to uh, not just Roman historians, but Roman orators and poets and lawyers to become a recurrent pattern that was related in some accounts to what seemed to be fundamental moral deficiencies built into the very fabric of Roman civilization itself, which would be um, recurrent, uh, would um, continue to tear at the very fabric of the Roman Commonwealth itself. And that apprehension um, repeated endlessly um, and often terrifyingly by Roman writers uh, became one of the greatest Roman legacies to later uh, uh, Romanoid societies, those who uh, fed, fed off. Did you say Romanoid? I think one can, yes. <laughs> not, not, not Romanesque <laughs> or Romanic, but, but Romanoid, the, those, those who thought of themselves as, in some sense, heirs of mm. uh, Roman politics or culture or the Roman Empire, for instance, uh, that uh, this, this fear continued deep into the 18th, even to the 19th century of repeating patterns of um, self-consuming, self-destructive, uh, violent behavior which rose above the level of mere seditions or tumults, as the Romans would have said, to open warfare, which was defined as being uh, uh, undertaken by um, well-organized armies, headed by generals, uh, attacking each other uh, under the formal 
codes of warfare itself. So something bigger than mere riots, demonstrations, right. tumults, even rebellions. And that right. became one of the dividing lines, uh, but also one of the points of contention about something maybe civil in the sense of taking place within or among the members of a recognizable community, but did it rise to the level of war? And if it rose to the level of war, how might that be understood? How might it be regulated? Could it even be ameliorated at some point? These remain uh, recurrent questions uh, into the present. And that, that Roman heritage, um, uh, I thought it would probably, when I initially began my research, I thought, well, maybe it would peter out in the 16th century, 17th century, perhaps the 18th century. Uh, but it endured for much longer than I imagined. So um, if today, for instance, one goes to Arlington Cemetery, uh, and you head uh, further away from the crowds uh, from the uh, the 20th century, uh, the cemetery parts of the cemetery commemorating contemporary uh, wars or 20th century wars, and head to I think it's the northwestern corner of Arlington Cemetery. You'll find um, the monument to the Confederate dead set up by the Daughters of the Confederacy, uh, just on the eve of the First World War. Mm. And inscribed on that monument is a quotation from the Roman poet Lucan about the Roman civil wars. Um, and that seems to me to sum up extremely nicely the enduring power, not even just into the 19th century, but even into the early 20th century, of Roman conceptions, particularly Roman, in this case, a, a highly moralized Roman conception of civil war still inflecting the way in which what we would think of as modern civil wars were being seen. And even in the debate on the Iraq war, uh, some, actually quite a few of the commentators on uh, the typology of war and whether or not the violence in Iraq rose to the level of war would use the Roman example and say, doesn't look like Roman civil war, can't be a war, doesn't quack like a duck, doesn't walk like a duck, can't be a duck, can't be a civil war because it doesn't look like the Roman civil war. So that the, those Roman conceptions endure even to the 21st century. Mm. So you've, you've passionately and eloquently um, articulated a view of the <coughs> essential nature of uh, the essentialness of the Romans and the Roman worldview and the legacy of Roman and the Republic and the Empire in terms of our understanding of civil war and the interpretations, the subsequent interpretations of civil war vis-a-vis -vis Roman interpretations, what have you. You have, however, evaded my silly question, <laughs> so I'm going to ask it again, which is, imagine for, um, imagine if you will, that, um, that we have uh, evolved as a society to the level where we currently find ourselves, and we pursued a different historical trajectory than that of um, uh, the the Republic and the Roman mm -hmm. Republic and the Roman Empire. Um, Hannibal won, say, uh, mm -hmm. back in the, the Punic War, uh, the Punic Wars. And um, it, would it be possible to? Um, well, let me just. I'm, I'm stuttering a little bit, but I'm trying, I'm trying to get a sense of how it might be possible to understand this notion of civil war, which, after all, uh, one could say, well, groups of human beings get together, and every so often there are, one can make an objective distinction between an internal 
internal dissent, which mm -hmm. might be carried to some rather large degree of intensity, as opposed to an external idea. Could you, could you imagine a, a world uh, where we still have the concept of civil war without that Roman backdrop, and mm -hmm. if so, what might it look like? Mm -hmm. Well, it might look very like our contemporary world, that, um, for instance, if you uh, talk to international lawyers, or you talk to the people who run NGOs, or you talk to military commanders now uh, in the 21st century, they tend um, to use their own common language uh, to describe the kinds of conflicts you, you just spoke of as internal conflicts rather than external or international conflicts. Um, and that language comes down to the rather unwieldy term, um, conflicts of a non-international nature, uh, armed conflicts uh, of a non-international nature, or uh, to use uh, the uh, much snappier acronym NIACS, that is non-international armed conflict. So the term civil war is less often used in what we might call expert speech, um, where the term NIAC is used, and this comes from uh, the debates over the Geneva Conventions and their revisions after the Second World War. So the language of civil war uh, in those arenas isn't always necessary because we have this other term which uh, deliberately avoids the term war right. as being too contentious and also deliberately sidelines the term civil uh, as one having too many meanings perhaps and so um, the more precise allegedly or um, apparently more easily defined um, conception of this particular species of conflict avoids both civil and war in preference for non-international armed conflict. So armed conflict substitutes for war and non-international substitutes for civil in that sense. So in, uh, in, in, in that way, we don't have to imagine a world where civil war is not a leading concept. We live in a world where that's a, um, uh, uh, um, uh, a leading and important concept. However, uh, we do in fact live in a world where the Roman Empire and its uh, long-running vocabularies still remain with us. So we live in a world where some people talk about civil war, um, often people on the ground using vernacular speech in their own languages and various different forms of the term talk about civil war even as the International Committee of the Red Cross or the United Nations or uh, uh, international legal organizations use the term non-international armed conflict. So what we get is a kind of cacophony of differing conceptions, some overlapping, or in some cases concentric, but non-identical conceptions of how to describe mm -hmm. these particular kinds of conflicts with rather different implications. And that's, that's what fascinates me, is that we don't have to create counterfactuals as it were, fictitiously, uh, we have actual counterfactuals in the sense of competing sedimented conceptions which are colliding with each other, often with people talking past each other or colliding with each other without realizing why and without realizing that the nature of or the origins of their contentions in fact come from very different histories. So the history of ideas of non-international armed conflict goes back to the 1940s. The history of ideas of civil war as such goes back to the first century BCE, and these are 
in dialogue with each other and carry their own histories, their own contested histories along different timescales and from different uh, communities, uh, but they're in dialogue with each other in the present. And that's really uh, where I was interested in going, because I can imagine somebody saying, well, this is all very nice, David, I understand that you're a historian and you're interested in tracing these ideas and the, the wording and the concepts and um, how they're used in this and, and that context. On the other hand, what I'd really like to do is I'd really like to have definitions, legal definitions. I would like to have an understanding of when we might intervene in various different conflicts. And I'm happy to have history to guide me, and I'm happy to have you point out uh, various authors who have written about this and, and so that I can examine and contrast that. But what we'd really like to do is we'd like to move towards a system of laws, a system of uh, uh, widespread understanding about what constitutes mm -hmm. what and which constitutes that. How is it that your historical understanding can inform these sorts of decisions in such a way that we can coherently move forward? Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. part of the problem that I get, um, that I personally get from reading this, is to say, well, it's all very complicated. And mm -hmm. you see, this person mm -hmm. says that, mm -hmm. that person abuses this, and there's this guy, what was his name, Emir de Vettel, mm -hmm. who says mm -hmm. all sorts of mm -hmm. different things, and he's arguing that you can intervene in one particular circumstance, mm -hmm. and then along comes the American uh, uh, Revolution that we now call the American Revolution, that other people were calling civil mm -hmm. wars at other times, as you alluded to earlier. Uh, and there, the games when England and France are saying, well, we can intervene, and you know, France could say we can intervene, in this particular mm -hmm. circumstance because it fits this, this set of criteria or what have you. Um, so that's very interesting mm -hmm. and it's very subtle, um, but it makes it very complicated. Mm -hmm. and, and I want to know what to do. I mm -hmm. want to know mm -hmm. what to do in Iraq. Mm -hmm. I, want mm -hmm. to know, mm -hmm. I want to know how we can go forwards. And, and, um, but I'm not sure you're giving me not so much a pat prescription, mm -hmm. but I'm just confused by all the subtlety. So mm -hmm. how do I move mm -hmm. forward? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I always say that engraved over the doorway of every history department should be the motto, it's all very complicated, uh, <laughs> since that's the historian's answer to almost any question that uh, uh, the kind of policymaker, for instance, whom you were ventriloquizing, brings to historians to say, well, uh, the, the policymaker or the politician, for instance, wants the bullet point or wants the answer or maybe wants two or three answers from which uh, she can choose. Um, and the historian says, no, no, it's all tremendously complicated and there are very uh, multiple and competing histories uh, behind all of this. And at that point, the policymaker says, well, I'm going to go and talk to, the, uh, to my friend the economist or my friend the, the social scientist uh, because they're much better at packing uh, their conclusions in ways that can be actionable. Right, or maybe uh, I won't talk to anyone at all for that. Yeah, well, exactly. Yes. Oh, uh, well, it was a big mistake to talk talk to the academics. They just make, make us more confused. Um, well, so uh, many many possible answers to to that very very important question. It is a, uh, one that's been very much on my mind uh, writing the book. Um, the first the first one is. Um, that we should always be cautious about the desire to uh, uh, look for clarity and things like definitions. The part of the, the moral of the book, as it were, is that yes, of course, uh, politicians, policy makers, uh, military officials, NGO um, 
representatives are looking for that kind of clarity. Um, and it's understandable they should be, uh, but part of the, the story of the book is look at all these other attempts in the past, at least since the 19th century, some in fact going back to the 18th century, to do exactly that, uh, and how contentious uh, they proved, uh, how um, interminable were the debates that ensued from the attempts to uh, create clarity. Uh, and so that's the first moral, as it were, is to be very cautious ab uh, about that impulse to drive towards clarity because it often creates more conflict and more unclarity in its wake than one might imagine. And the book gives many examples of precisely that. Ticklish business. Ticklish business, exactly, yes, yes. And uh, I, I think probably the, 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 uh, the main conclusion I've derived as a historian uh, in my reflections on the past is that uh, it's not just that it's all very compli complicated, but uh, history is mostly about unintended consequences, not intended consequences. And the unintended consequences of the attempt to create clarity, uh, to um, to put boundaries or limits around something which is inherently impossible to pin down um, uh, have been the source of many of the uh, conflicts, large and small, uh, in, um, in the histories at least that I've studied over the, over the past right. uh, few hundred years. So be careful. Uh, so be careful. Be extremely right. careful about that. Be, be very cautious about asking why you want that clarity and what you want it for, but also realize there will be consequences you can't foresee uh, in the attempt to narrow down the proliferation of potential meanings of these extremely contentious terms. <coughs> the second moral um, is listen to the variety of voices uh, who are using these languages and imagining conflicts in these terms. So don't um, imagine that uh, because you come from uh, a professional community with its own forms of expert speech and uh, uh, its own histories or history of action through um, language, whether legal language, bureaucratic language, military language, political language, whatever it uh, may be, that you have a monopoly on truth. Uh, that when, for instance, to take a, a relatively recent example, when uh, for at least nine months, uh, people on the ground in Syria had been saying, we are engaged in a civil war, um, and it took at least that long for the International Committee of the Red Cross uh, to say formally, this is not a civil war, but this is a non-international armed conflict, uh, which triggered certain provisions of international humanitarian law, uh, triggered certain provisions in relation to humanitarian aid that could go into Syria, for instance, uh, to listen to the people on the ground and their conception of what was going on, rather than to imagine that uh, the policymakers, the NGO officials, um, representatives of international organizations had a monopoly on um, the truth, even though it was tremendously important that the ICRC should have made that determination when they did. The gap between understandings on the ground and those external understandings was one into which uh, tens of thousands of people had fallen by that point. So question uh, your own monopoly of definitions or even of truth, listen to the voices of those who may know best what's going on and try to negotiate some 
uh, rapprochement between those different understandings of different groups of people who, uh, especially those who were um, uh, bearing the brunt, losing their lives, losing their families, losing their homes um, uh, in the context of those conflicts. I think that's, that's one poignant part of this. Um, the other, perhaps more hopeful uh, moral, is to say um, history actually provides us with a repertoire of possibilities. Um, uh, that uh, going back through the past and looking at some of these earlier uh, definitions, earlier debates, earlier arguments about civil war uh, can actually provide um, a suite or an armory of conceptual, practical, political, even rhetorical resources in the present, which is broader than the toolkit that most um, active, politically active or practically active uh, professionals have available to them. So it's one of the lessons that, uh, for instance, Quentin Skinner has often um, uh, reinforced uh, from intellectual history that by going back through the past, we can uh, discover intellectual resources which may have been uh, abandoned, sidelined, marginalized, or forgotten for various reasons, which may still be practically helpful in the present. So you, for instance, alluded to um, Vettel. Vettel um, is an unknown name, I think, to most people now. Uh, if he's known at all, it would be to a few international lawyers, but was tremendously influential uh, legal writer of the middle of the 18th century, wrote a book called The Law of Nations, which was a kind of compendium or handbook of contemporary understandings of what we would now call international law, which was influential for at least a century and had a vast global impact. Um, a key part of his discussions um, in that immensely influential book uh, was about the nature of civil war, how it could be understood, in particular in relation to the issues that, that you also mentioned a moment ago, uh, the question of intervention. Um, was a civil war um, a divisive force of such uh, enormity that for instance, as he argued, um, a civil war created effectively two nations. Uh, the example that would later be drawn on uh, by Edmund Burke in the context of the French Revolution was that after 1789, the French um, nation had in fact divided into two nations, one that supported the, uh, the monarchy uh, and the king, and the other which had set off in a very different uh, and more destructive direction. In that context, because France was two nations, the other nations of Europe had to choose which of those two nations they would support, mm. and having chosen whether to support them, to intervene on behalf of whichever nation they believed uh, had justice on its side. And for Edmund Burke, for instance, in the context of the, uh, the French Revolutionary Wars, he believed that the, uh, the nation still attached to the French monarchy was the legitimate and just um, combatant, as it were, in that, uh, that context, and therefore Britain should intervene on behalf of the restoration of the monarchy and therefore the destruction uh, of the revolutionary forces. Um, and that was in fact a very radical doctrine of intervention. Uh, conceptions of intervention, the limits of intervention are perhaps, many might say, um, the, mo uh, the most contentious of all issues arising from contemporary civil, civil wars. What level of um, humanitarian assistance, 
is at one end of the spectrum, uh, leading all the way to uh, boots on the ground, um, debates about Syria, Libya, and all the way back to Iraq, hinge upon those ideas of the legitimacy of intervention or um, the right to in intervention by external powers. And that debate, um, in its modern form, goes back to those debates about civil war from the 18th century and Vattel and his rather radical doctrines, which have been um, ameliorated politically and legally since. But understanding that range of possibilities, the spectrum of arguments uh, can enrich current debate and lead to a wider range of options, but also some knowledge of the, uh, the consequences of earlier interventions, which might provide, again, cautions uh, to policymakers and others who are shaping uh, political interventions of various kinds in the present. Maybe. Um... <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm hesitating because I don't want to ask the same question again, um, but I might, I might do that anyway uh, inadvertently. So let me try to be as explicit as I can, uh, and let me reference the history manifesto as well that you, that you wrote. Um, and let me put my cards on the table. So I love what you do. I, I, I find this notion of exploring the history in ideas of various concepts through the ages, tremendously intellectually stimulating. I find it fascinating to get a, a, a sense of how our understanding of various concepts has been prejudiced by past societies and past beliefs that we might not even be aware of, um, how they in turn go on to uh, influence other societies, how it, how it frames our understanding or our naive understanding or what have you of these ideas. Um, and, and so I pick up the History Manifesto, uh, which you have co-written with Joe Goldie. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Mm -hmm. um, which, is, uh, which is a very passionate and eloquent invocation for long-term thinking. Um, highlighting the fact that, as many people have pointed out, one of the scourges of our age is that everybody's thinking for the short term. Uh, and that if we would recognize the intrinsic and inherent value of taking the longer view, we would all be better off. I think we would all be intellectually better off. Mm -hmm. I don't, uh, and, and I think, um, I think that a cultured, cultivated, educated, society would be filled with people who, who are aware of the past and who are aware of ideas. And, and you don't have these, um, these uh, ignorant cowboys who are declaring war here, there, and everywhere and invading various places mm -hmm. without any understanding, for example, of, of what has gone before and mm -hmm. what the particular culture is and what the landscape is to, uh, as an extreme version. Um, but sometimes I wonder, um, I, I, I just wonder, it's, it's a variant on my wondering of whether the world would be better off if people thought about things the way I do. <laughs> so so uh, there's, yes, I think it's, things are more subtle, things are more complicated. 
uh, we should we should be aware of what's actually happened before. We should have longer-term thinking. The idea that we are living in an age on the corporate side of things, where now everybody's thinking in a very short term, and they used to think in a very long term, I'm actually skeptical of. I'm mm -hmm. not actually entirely certain that people 400 years ago in the mm -hmm. corporate world mm -hmm. were thinking any more long-term than they are today. But be that as it may, um, so I'm, I'm rambling a little bit, so I, I, I have the power to edit mm -hmm. this, so I'll be able to edit this out. But what, what, I'm, um, what I'm grappling with is, look, there are odious strongmen in various parts of the world today who are feeling protected by the fact that they have come into a position of being able to, by hook or by crook, running sovereign states and therefore they can do whatever the heck they want to do to their citizens. Um, how do we, what sort of policies do we actually make? How do we actually get there? And we have to do something. We have to be able to be in a situation where um, we can actually formulate laws. So yes, we should, we should look really long and hard and see what your friend Vettel did and mm -hmm. see what people have done over the years and see what things have failed and see what things have succeeded and see, and see all of this and appreciate the errors in the past that we've made. Um, maybe it would be nice if, if we understood deeper historical aspects to be cultivated individuals of the Roman Republican Empire, mm -hmm. or maybe, maybe not. But at the end of the day, we have to get there and we have to get there in some kind of real time and we have to be able to see, are we actually making progress? Um, and, and I guess my question is, uh, finally, are, <laughs> are you really going to help us get to something concrete? Are we, are we really going to be able to get there? And, and let me be super explicit because I am not of the view that if you can't, then your project is worthless. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that mm -hmm. uh, at all. I think it's, it's, it has all sorts of intrinsic merits to it and I hope you write zillions more books and all the rest of that. But I still don't, I'm still not convinced that there is a practical aspect to this mm -hmm. in real time in my life. Mm -hmm. You see, you see where, mm -hmm. I, where mm -hmm. I'm going? Mm -hmm. um, so am I asking the same question again? I think I just asked the same question again. Yeah, but more, more pointedly. So, <laughs> so I'll, I'll, I'll respond first with a, with a uh, wonderful quotation from uh, a late great Harvard colleague, Ernest May, who uh, was very um, invested through much of his career uh, in not just the history of policy, but the way in which history could inform policy. Um, and he said in one of, one, uh, one of his co-authored books with, with, with his co-author that the future has nowhere to come from but the past. Um, and one way you can unpack that very pregnant phrase is to say that um, all thinking about the formation of policy in particular is historical thinking, but most of those who engage in policy formation uh, don't explicitly recognize the fact that what they are doing is historical. And usually what they're doing is based on inadequate information, uh, under-informed by um, the kinds of uh, subtleties that historians engage with in their handling of evidence and argument, uh, for instance, and that if we made explicit that much of policy formation was based on uh, the gathering of past data, um, the explication of patterns within that data, uh, the attempt to uh, create scenarios uh, based on assumptions about the past, their relation to the present and how they could inform the future, um, then we have, might have more thoughtful 
um, policy formation itself. And uh, the parallel that springs to mind that comes back to an earlier part of our discussion is with counterfactual history. I mean, I always argue uh, that all history is counterfactual history, but most of the time we don't acknowledge that to ourselves as we're trying to um, uh, make sense of historical evidence, uh, we are always forming plausible and implausible explanations or scenarios uh, or narratives around that material and abandoning those that are implausible in favor of those that seem plausible as an explanation for the available evidence. That's counterfactual thinking. We're abandoning the counterfactuals or we're imagining ways in which the evidence could fit together in such a way that it has explanatory power or that uh, uh, coheres as a narrative. And so actually being explicit about what you are doing, all historians are engaging in counterfactual history all the time, but they don't acknowledge it to themselves. All policymakers and those who are trying to project potential futures uh, and shape those potential futures are engaged in some kind of historical work, but don't acknowledge that or haven't been um, um, brought to realize that. I think that's one of the contributions that historians can make, is not just simply being at the table as experts, and so in a debate about the, fu the future of healthcare in the US or the UK or anywhere, anywhere else to have uh, professional historians who have studied um, health systems and the history of medicine and the, uh, the proliferation of uh, social care and so on and so forth would be very useful, but to have even a basic understanding that shaping the future is uh, dependent upon understandings about the past and the evidence that comes from the past, I think is, is a very basic way in which we can contribute mm. to those debates. And a more positive way, again, coming back to something I was saying before, is to see the, uh, the past uh, not as something which um, is um, necessarily shaping the future, but uh, provides, um, pick your metaphor, a treasure chest, a toolkit uh, of possibilities of ideas, of examples, of potential futures, uh, that can be very helpful, I think, to policy formation to say, not only here are terrible mistakes which have made in the, been made in the past, avoid them, uh, but maybe there's something because it's disconnected to the present that we can recover from the past that might be helpful for us to think forward in the future, consider that possibility. Right. Uh, but also uh, in particular in relation to uh, the question of uh, going far back in the past, uh, I think uh, we, we, we quote in the book uh, Winston Churchill who uh, said during the Second World War, uh, the, the further back you can look, the further forward you can see, um, that the, having a longer perspective in history can give one uh, at least a, a larger range of plausible futures from which to choose and having a larger range of those plausible scenarios for the future gives one a more concrete range of possibilities for the formation of policy as well. I think it's also important to stress that it's, it's by no means the case that one is necessarily uh, going in, in circles and reiterating the same ideas or the same arguments. There is, there is a very clear sense that uh, when one is looking backwards, one is also invoking current trends, namely technology. You, mm -hmm. you talk a lot about big data mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and the importance of being able to harness um, what the current generation has been able to provide um, to be able, in fact, to take new and different long-term views mm -hmm. for the future. So mm -hmm. it's not as if one is constantly mm -hmm. reinventing the wheel mm -hmm. by any stretch of the imagination. Mm -hmm. Obviously, um, ideas come in out of fashion and one should be careful not to 
um, have uh, unequivocally discarded something that, that is meritorious and, and one should go back and re-examine. But at the same time, there are new tools that are coming up all the time and there are transformative new tools mm -hmm, on some mm -hmm, occasions. Mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and one of the arguments that you're making is that this is there are some transformative new tools that are available right now mm -hmm. and that we should pay attention to how best we can use them in the right perspective. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, future work. So you've just... Mm -hmm. You've just spent a large chunk of your life um, writing this book, which has yet to come out, but mm -hmm. may already be out by the time people watch this. Mm -hmm. um, when is it coming out? Uh, fall 2016. Oh, fall 2016. On both sides of the Atlantic, so a year, year from where we sit now. Um, uh, presumably, uh, as a productive, prolific fellow, you're you're thinking about other projects? Are you going back mm -hmm. to the Huntington Library and poking mm -hmm. around? Or do you have something already in mind? Or what's, what's happening? I've got two or three smaller projects that I'm working on at the moment. Uh, uh, one is um, looking at the origins of post-colonial approaches to international law. Uh, I think I've discovered the origins of that in the work of a Polish-British lawyer working in Madras, Chennai in the 1950s, and so editing his materials and thinking uh, very hard about the impact of decolonization on understandings of, again, of sovereignty and statehood and relations between European and non-European peoples. Um, I've been working for some time and hope to complete shortly an edition of John Locke's colonial writings, John Locke, um, the father alleged father of modern liberalism in the West, uh, spent a good part of his professional career deeply involved in the practical business of uh, organizing and promoting English colonialism in the Atlantic world, including uh, the promotion of uh, such an institution of slave, uh, slavery uh, and its proliferation on uh, the western side of the Atlantic. How could that be compatible with um, um, his uh, commitment to individual freedom and rights uh, has been uh, a very important question for political theorists, but uh, it's one that's often been pursued with inadequate evidence, so I'm pulling together all the available evidence on that question. Question. Um, having worked on civil war for about 10 years, um, uh, I thought it was time to move on to uh, another issue. So with a, uh, a friend and colleague, I'm co-editing a book on peace, having worked on war, uh, looking at the cultural history of peace in uh, the Age of Enlightenment from the mid-17th century to uh, the early 19th century, a, a remarkably understudied topic compared to the amount of work that's been expended on war. understanding war, uh, but arguably um, ideas of peace and practices of peace um, uh, have been at least as important in shaping our modern world and uh, deserve ample attention as well. And uh, if it's defined as the absence of war, you see, then, uh, mm -hmm. then it, it's, it's deemed not worthy of too much mm -hmm. attention. That's but, right. But one can look at it differently. I exactly. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, a, an important vein of my work up to this point has been on the history of oceans. I um, uh, began as a historian of the Atlantic world. I've more recently worked on the uh, Pacific. So, and with uh, two colleagues in Cambridge, I've recently uh, started a, a new series on oceanic history uh, with Cambridge University Press. And we're uh, planning uh, a book, possibly a conference, on oceanic histories, bringing together the histories of the Indian Ocean, the Pacific, the Mediterranean, the Black Sea, the Caribbean, uh, the Great, Southern, Great Southern Ocean. Uh, so that's that's the next few months, anyway. And we'll <laughs> we'll come up with something else after that. But uh, uh, I'm I'm now in the situation that I was in 
uh, a few years ago when I was at the Huntington looking for the next, as it were, a solo project. These are all collaborative or uh, editorial projects uh, after Civil War, but the next right. next big book is uh, uh, still a twinkle in the eye, and I'm not quite sure what it will be yet, but uh, get back to me on that. It, before um, before I, I wrap up or ask mm. you if you have any, any further questions, um, you mentioned slavery, and mm. one of the things that I'd forgotten that mm -hmm. you mentioned it was... Um, this isn't really a question, but just just a just a comment, which I will, in all likelihood, edit yeah, out. But yeah. it was fascinating for me when I was reading um, the Declaration of Independence book um, on how the, some of the wording mm -hmm. changed, mm -hmm. how some of uh, Jefferson's original wording was changed to accommodate the interests of. Uh, various slave-owning states mm -hmm. and slave-owning interests and uh, all the rest of this that uh, because of course it's so incredibly jarring when mm -hmm. one looks at that second paragraph in the declaration mm -hmm. and, and how is it possible that people who are citing the rights of man uh, can at the same time be a, a, mm -hmm. a slave-owning society mm -hmm. um, so it was interesting to get a little bit of backdrop there. I, mm -hmm, again, mm -hmm. that was just a comment, and that's just because we're talking about this now, so mm -hmm, I thought I'd mm -hmm. uh, mention it. But, but as uh, was pointed out by contemporaries as well, Samuel Johnson said, why is it that the, uh, the, the, those who cry loudest for liberty are also the drivers of Negroes? Uh, so that uh, hypocrisy was observed even at the time. Sure. It's become clearer and clearer uh, to us since. Well, the, 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 when, did, when did the... Um, when did the the British ban the slave trade? It was in the late 18th century. It was before the, the Declaration of Independence, wasn't it? No, 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 no. It was the early 19th century. Uh, 18, was it the early 1804. 19th century? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, then um, that doesn't quite work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> A counterfactual which mm -hmm. I got mm -hmm. caught up on. That's right, right, right. <laughs> Well, one interesting counterfactual that uh, uh, a couple of historians have proposed is uh, if the American Revolution had never happened, would abolition have taken place earlier in on the North American mainland than it did? Right. Uh, obviously, the, the abolition first of the slave trade and then of slavery itself um, took place earlier in the British Empire and in the Caribbean uh, than it did in, in uh, the United States and didn't need a bloody and cataclysmic civil war uh, to effect it. Uh, so the counterfactual might run if uh, uh, what became the United States had remained within the British Empire, uh, perhaps there might have been abolition two decades, three decades, four decades earlier. Right. Um, and this is related to, to another one of your ruminations mm -hmm. in the Civil War book when you talk about one of the things that's anomalous about the Civil War, the American Civil War, is that it happened so much after mm -hmm. the War of, uh, of Independence mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. and that mm -hmm. uh, compared to other similar circumstances, mm -hmm. um, uh, such a thing would have happened actually mm -hmm. quite, mm -hmm. quite mm -hmm. a bit earlier. Mm -hmm. um, any questions or any comments? that you have before we wrap up? Is there anything we missed or, or failed to capitalize on or glossed over? Nothing that I can immediately think of. No, no, that was very penetrating. It was very well informed. Thank you. <laughs> that was very enjoyable. Thank mm, you very much. Dave. Thank you. Very yes, very indeed. Fun. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About History, Volume 3, along with separate discussions with Carl Gerth, Jennifer Michael Hecht, Margaret McMillan, and Matthew Stewart. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com. 
For those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in, are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.